Welcome to Veteran Voices, a podcast dedicated to giving a voice to those that have served in our country's armed forces. On this series, we sit down with a wide variety of veterans and veteran advocates to gain their insights, perspective, and experiences. We'll talk with many individuals about their challenging transition from active duty to the private sector. And we'll discuss some of the most vital issues facing veterans today. Join us for this episode of Veteran Voices. Good afternoon, Scott Luton and Chris Barnes with you here on Veteran Voices. Thanks for joining us here today. On today's show, we are talking with a longtime friend, Vietnam vet, and industry dynamo. So stay tuned for a great conversation we've got. A quick programming note, this program is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming. Find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Simply search for Veteran Voices, and we'd love for you to subscribe for free. So you don't miss outstanding conversations just like this. All right, so Chris Barnes, how are you doing today? Doing fine, Scott. Thanks for letting me partake in the show. Well, this is a really neat episode, and, and I'm glad. I think this will be the first time in, in probably a dozen episodes I've had a co-host, so it's great to have you sitting in the chair beside me, especially for this guest here today that you and I both value our friendship with and, and we've collaborated with for so long, and, and now we get to dive deeper in his story. Are you ready to do it? Ready to go. Thank you. All right. So let's welcome in our featured guest, the one and only Mike Roman. Mike, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Scott. How are you doing? We're good. We are so good. We, we can't see you, but I remember plenty of car drives to Savannah. I remember plenty of board meetings sitting beside you and lunches. So uh, you're here in spirit, uh, at least audio with us, and, and we can't wait to pick your brain a bit. I appreciate that. I'm looking forward to that. How you doing, Chris? Doing good, Mike. It's great to hear your voice. Yours too, sir. All right. So, Chris, uh, we're, we're going to start with you know, getting to know him a little bit before maybe military, right? Yeah, I'm sure he was doing something before he was in Vietnam, but let's, let's try to find that out. So, Mike, if you can, just kind of let's go back. I don't know if you want to go back to your high school days, college days, whatever, but kind of before, before the military, before you started working. What was, tell us who you are, where you're from, and maybe some stories around what, what made you the person you are. On my dad's side of the family, my dad's a first-generation American. His mother was born in Poland. His father was born in Lithuania. I grew up in that home in Detroit, Michigan. was my younger brother, myself, my mom, my dad, my dad's mother, my dad's father, and my dad's mother's father, who was a uh, Prussian captain in the cavalry. He always ate first. When he burped and got up from the table, it was a signal for us to go eat. He never spoke to my father, never spoke to my mother. I don't know if he spoke to my dad's father. He would speak to my grandmother and, you know, uh, in his uh, thick German accent. And uh, that said, he shared a home with my grandmother and with his other daughter, Helen. But when he was with us, he didn't speak English at all. And he never spoke to anyone other than my grandmother that I can remember. He and I played a game during the summers. He, he lived at the back of the house in the bedroom, which was beside a, a porch. And he'd unlock the screen porch door and uh, would open the garage where he had a, a workbench. He was a, a, a cabinet maker. And in his workbench, which I now have, he had all his hand tools. And this game we played for, um, it seems like ever, he would open the door, uh, let me, you know, sneak out, go into the, into the garage, open his drawers, and line all his tools up in size order. He had a broken hip, and he walked with a cane, and, uh, uh, and he would come out, look at the tools, point at one, and, you know, kind of push it, and look at it and say, he didn't speak, but he'd point with his cane and said, it doesn't go there, it moves, and he'd point to where it should be. And when I rearranged the tools to his satisfaction, he'd nod at me, turn around and walk, walk back. And it was my job then to put all the tools back in the right drawers. We played that game forever, never speaking a word. An early lesson in 5S, Mike. Yes. 
It was. You're right on, Scott. Scott, good point. So, Mike, you speak German, or you, you said you didn't speak any words? Well, he didn't speak because I was below his rank. Uh, but I, I grew up speaking Russian, German, Lithuanian, Polish, and English. And one of my early lessons, I was four or five, and my grandfather, I called him Dash, and I never knew why, and I, I learned years later. And my grandmother, we'd, they put me in the car with them. We'd go to the delicatessen to pick up lunch meats for the week. And on the one of the conversations in the car on the way uh, was, uh, we need to keep an eye on the butcher because he's putting his thumb on a scale. So, of course, being a you know an astute four- or five-year-old, I was watching the butcher very closely when my grandmother and grandfather turned around to have a conversation. And he put his thumb on the scale, and I yelled out in Lithuanian, he's got his thumb on the scale. First thing my grandfather did was come over and clap me upside the head and say, English, we don't want to embarrass these people who let us come into their country. Then he says, you use SOB, take your thumb off the scale. And he was probably as confused as everybody because he didn't know what you said. Yes, he was. So that's some of those memories. It, they were wonderful. I mean, what an upbringing. It's like you said, you know, the, the five S about where things go in a proper organized uh, way. Absolutely wonderful. So you grew up in Detroit, the Detroit area? You went to school there? Went to grade school there. Dad was working for Ford, and my grandfather had died. And uh, my grandmother refused to leave Detroit. So on, on two days before we were scheduled to leave, she decided to die. We had a funeral there, and then the family moved to Louisville. And I went to high school in Louisville. And as strange as it may sound, I met another Vietnam veteran at the Johns Creek Veterans Association meeting. Johns Creek, Georgia, for our listeners, which is just north of Atlanta. I was walking out into the kitchen as he was walking out of the kitchen. He looked at me. I looked at him. We proceeded to walk forward. I put my hand out for a handshake. He put his hand out for a shake. I said, John, how you doing? He says, Mike, it's been 50 years, but I've been doing fine. He was my high school buddy. We had been in every class for four years. And where do we meet? Johns Creek, Georgia. 50 years later. Wow. 50 years. It was almost to the day, 50 years later. One additional follow-up question. What, what, when did you come? When did you move to the Atlanta area? We moved here in uh, 81. I'd gotten a job with Control Data, and I was a programmer. And we were writing uh, uh, an MRP2 system. It was one of the first for, for smaller computers. We were writing it for a uh, mini computer, and it turned out that the mini computer was the wrong market. So they kept me there to help convert it to a PC-based system. If we can go back, Mike, I want to I want to get to that point, but I want to talk about your getting into the military and then the transition yeah. out of the military because that's a big part of our listenership for this yes, this is. program is how how do we transition into the into the public sector? So I got a question. You're pretty well networked, from what I can tell in this area. As you, you talked about, you know, your college, your high school friend after 50 years. I was at a I was at another event. I went to Bradley University, a basketball game watching event here in Atlanta, Georgia, and I met Mike Kotler, who happened to be a Navy Navy submarine person. Submarine Mike. Just sitting there chit-chatting with him. You weren't even there. It had nothing to do with you. And then I started talking about the Vietnam vets and John's Creek, and he's like, oh, yeah, I go there often. And I'm like, do you really? And I said, do you know Mike Roman? He's like, oh, who doesn't know Mike Roman? So <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool there. And then one more, if you don't mind. No. So we were sitting, you and I, Mike Roman, we're sitting at the Starbucks in Johns Creek, Georgia. But we're sitting there just chit-chatting. I had my back to the door. Somebody walks out, and I could see the shadow. And I noticed you you looked up and saw who it was, and they walked past. And all of a sudden, you said, hey, hold on. And you're like, hey, hey, Tommy. And I'm, and I'm like, who is this guy talking about? And I look over, and you're like, Tommy Glavin, come back here. <laughs> and it's Scott, Scott, who is Tom Glavin? He is a Hall of Fame Major League pitcher that won – the 95 World Series in Game 6 against uh, Cleveland. And he's, so he's a legend in baseball and certainly in Atlanta. And still lives in the in North Atlanta suburbs. So anyhow, so we're sitting there, and I'm thinking, okay, Mike, this is, this is ridiculous. You can't just start seeing f famous people and calling them out. Sure enough, 
Tommy walks right back to us, got to our tables. Mike got up, shook his hand, and they, they carried on for five or ten minutes. What's your relationship there, Mike? Tell me about that. Well, um, <laughs> Tommy won't admit it, but what happened was uh, I, I was playing hockey for uh, the Delta traveling team. I could play the home games, but since I wasn't a Delta employee, I could only play the home games. And Boom Boom Jeffreyon, whose son Bobby ran the, uh, the, the team, saw me at practice one day. And he had me over, he wanted to know who in the heck I was. He said, do you know who I am? I said, yeah, I know who you are. Is you going to shake my hand? I said, yeah, I'll shake your hand. You want my autograph? I said, hell no. And he says, why not? I said, because you weren't friends with my friend. Well, who's your friend? Gordy Howe. Wow. <laughs> so <laughs> there, there was this love-hate relationship between Boom Boom and myself. I mean, I, I, the man was an outstanding person. Heck of a hockey player, but coached us. And then one day, um, I'm coming off the ice, and he grabs me and says, Roman. And every once in a while, he would pretend he didn't know how to speak English. So Boom Boom says, I'm getting this guy. He's coming in. You tell me whether this kid's good or no good. Well, what am I supposed to do that, Boom Boom, after practice? Well, how long am I supposed to do that for, Boom Boom? He says, two hours. I said, yeah, I got nothing better to do than escape with you guys for two hours and play with some kid for two hours. And he says, well, good, Roman, you need to learn to skate. So I had this kid come out, and I put him through his paces. And he was, he was really good. He was faster than me. The only problem is he was trying to prove he was better than you. And that, that's not how you play hockey. And I picked up on that. So I was frustrating him. And he was trying this one move where he deked me to one side, and I opened that skate. Deked me to the other side, I opened that skate. He puts the puck between my legs and then tries to pick, up, pick the puck up on the other side of me. That's the oldest trick in the book. All I got to do is put my elbows out. As he's looking down, he runs it into an elbow. And after the third or fourth time he's laying on the ice, he backhanded me on the back of the knees with his stick. I grabbed him and I said, you do that to me one more time, I'm going to teach you how to eat without teeth. That was uh, Tommy Glavin. So Tommy was, a, Tommy was a good hockey player. I mean, He was. He, Boston, I believe it was Boston University. He was a star and was being auditioned for the L.A. Uh, Kings. And Boom Boom chose me to help interview him. You're a good hockey player from what I, what I hear in the past. Uh, so that was the whole relationship used there. Used to be. Yeah, we had to go through Mike Roman's hockey talent agent just to get you booked for the show here, Mike. I love, Chris, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up, uh, especially with all the, the Tommy Glavin fans and Braves fans and baseball fans. It's, it's the, the world gets so smaller when you start peeling the layers of the onion back. And he does a lot for charities. You are right. And, he, and he's developing into a great baseball announcer, by the way. I, I've enjoyed yes. these Braves broadcasts in the last few years. All right, so, Chris, we're going to transition as much as – I bet there's so many other hockey stories there. We're going to transition and pick Mike's brain more about his time in, in uniform. You know, what got you into the military? It sound, you know, I didn't realize that about your grandfather, but it sounds like it might have been in your blood. What, what was that appealing factor to get you involved? Mom's family uh, came over in the 1500s. Some of the family came as indentured Irish slaves, and that part of the family was in every conflict on this continent from the French and Indian Wars. So I, I've got that in my background. My dad's mother's father was the, the Prussian Cal, Calvary guy. Uh, Mom and dad both served in World War II. He was a B-29 pilot. She was an OR nurse and met my dad in the operating room as he was recovering from a, a crash B-29. We used to have foot and wall lockers growing up, uh, inspections. It, it, not really foot lockers or real wardrobe things, but our dressers and our uh, closet had to be inspected. The shoes had to be lined up a special way. Socks had to be folded a certain way. Underwear had to be folded a certain way, etc., etc., etc. And I was pretty good in grade school. I was pretty good in high school. And my dad being a first-generation American, and I being his oldest son, where does an American first-generation Catholic, go to high school, go to college. Notre Dame, 
Well, I had a partial scholarship at the University of Louisville to help my next-door neighbor, who was a jock, very good. He, he as a matter of fact, uh, played with the, with the Steelers for a while, but wasn't a study freak, let's put it that way. So I was going to help him through the uh, University of Louisville. And my graduation present was a, an envelope from my dad as I was dressing to leave for my graduation. Dad had me the envelope. And I shook it. I said, there's no keys in here. And he says, no. He says, but I got you a ticket. And I said, oh, boy. And so I opened up, and it was a bus ticket. And I said, bus ticket? What's this? He says, oh, the family's moving to uh, South Bend. That's a ticket. You're on the bus Monday morning, and you have an interview with Brother Raphael and, at Notre Dame uh, Monday afternoon, and then Tuesday you report to me in the foundry. I said, hey, I'm supposed to help Ira get through college. He says, oh, yeah, what does that pay? I said, uh, well, I, I get uh, books and uh, room and board. Oh, does it pay for your meals? Does it pay for your education? I said, no. He said, where are you going to get that money? I said, you promised me that, you, that you'd send me to school. He says, I am. You're going to Notre Dame. So went to interview with Brother Raphael and uh, explained to him that I had not signed the letter that he had read that was impressed with, uh, and that I wasn't going to start the, the school that, uh, and the date on the date they had me uh, promised for. And at that time, Vietnam was heating, was heating up. And he says, well, you know, Mike, he said, uh, the Army just may draft you. And I said, well, that's fine. And I said, but I can get into another school. He says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll help you get into to Indiana University South Bend campus. So he did. And uh, Dad didn't speak to me for probably three months. But I went to Indiana University, got kicked out after my first semester. Uh, there was a woman who didn't care for the Vietnam War, was my English teacher It failed me, called me up at home and said, hey, I'll help you get back in because you've been kicked out. Come over to my office, we'll, we'll write a letter. So she helped me write a letter to get back in. I got back in, took her for the same class. I failed again. I got kicked out for my second semester. She helped me get back in. Third semester, I made all A's and decided that I needed to grow up. And there was no better way to grow up than to join the service, get an education in some field, and go on from there. So I looked for some schooling and electronic training only required three-year commitment with the Army, six for the Navy, six for the Air Force, and the Marines didn't offer that. So I chose the Army because there was only a three-year commitment. Went through basic training. I was in charge of a squad. My DI, Sergeant Leo Elliott, I met in Vietnam, and I thanked him for saving my life. That was some of the best training I've ever had in my life, just basic survival learn how to shoot a weapon, etc. Sergeant Elliott was your drill instructor, is that right? Yes, he was, Leo Elliott. He treated me different than the others. He rode me really hard, but he'd call me down to his office, and I'd have to stand outside his office while he talked to another drill instructor, and they were discussing what was going on tomorrow. And then when he was done talking to him, I'd learn what we were going to do tomorrow, and I could prepare my guys. And when I said, uh, when, when I first came in, he said, Roman, wait outside. I'll be with you. And that's when they had the discussion. Then he said, Roman, you can leave now. So he made it clear to me I was there to learn. So I'd take back to my guys, go back to my guys, and say, this is what we're going to be doing tomorrow. Anybody have a problem with that? How can we help you get through this? And we were the best squad for basic training. We did everything right. And one incident in that stands out in my memory. There was a little short guy, Rusty Wilson, was my right-hand man. And Rusty was always the guy who would take the message out. In basic training, you have a time for the buffer and you have a time not for the buffer. In other words, you had X number of minutes to, to clean your room with the buffer. Our time was up and Rusty was the one who always brought the, the buffer in. And unlike everybody else who took their boots off, I kept my boots on, and I had a path from bed to bed to bed to outside the, the room, and I wouldn't mess up the floor. 
And Rusty was starting to bring their buffer in. All of a sudden, there was a commotion outside. And the guy said, it's my time for the buffer. And Rusty said, it's not. It's our time. Look at, look at your watch. So I bounced from bed to bed, went out there, and grabbed the buffer from the guy trying to steal it from Rusty. At which time, the guy from the, from the other side of us came to get the buffer. And he was yelling at Rusty. This guy was yelling at me on my side. And the guy came at me and threw a punch as the guy was coming up behind me trying to get the buffer from us. I ducked. That guy knocked out the guy who was coming to get the buffer. I, being in my boots and him in his socks, I threw him against the wall. And as he bounced off the wall, I punched him once and he went down. There's a big, commission, a big commotion outside. There's two guys laying knocked out. I knocked out one of them. And Leo Elliott comes up and Rusty says, Sergeant Elliott, you should have seen Roman. I had the buffer, and this guy came and knocked Roman, knocked him out, and then this guy came and Roman knocked him out, and we got the buffer. Elliott turned around and left. <laughs> Who would have thought a buffer yeah. was a hot commodity item in base? I, don't, I, I remember the buffer. We had a, um, in an Air Force basic, don't laugh, Mike, but we had a, a piece of metal that separated one side of the dorm from a hallway, and we call it the Cadillac. And that had to be gleaming in our inspections. Yep. And I remember uh, certainly the buffer and cleaning the day room. And there was a closet in the day room that contained all of our civvies, right, all of our suitcases that we brought to uh, BASIC with us. And there was one day in particular in BASIC when, uh, you know, after a few weeks when the drill instructor, at least with us, the uh, TI would leave, leave us alone for the weekends at least, right? We still had stuff to do, but we didn't have him right over our shoulder and so we were going to we were trying <laughs> several folks in the flight were trying to take the ceiling tiles tiles out to get over uh that the partition between the day room and the closet they get to some of the things we brought and uh we, we, we i don't think we were successful but we didn't get caught so uh but anyway what stays what what goes on in basics got to stay in basic but i love that story about the buffer and for that matter chris about about some of the background behind your, your family's service in the military and, and commitment to service and, and sacrifice. That, that's fascinating. So let's talk more about your time, you know, as you, as you progress from basic. What was, you alluded to the electronic stuff. What was your official MOS? 31S30. I was a crypto maintenance man. 31S30. What did you do in that role? Uh, fixed teletypes. Uh. <laughs> No, I was trained to be a field crypto maintenance man. So all the field crypto gear, the KY8s, KW7s, radios that were put in helicopters for enciphered transmissions, teletypes that were in comm centers, radios that were carried on people's backs, all had the ability to be enciphered. And we trained for a year in the States on how to maintain that equipment. Did that require a top secret clearance? Yes, it did. And as a matter of fact, I'd like to brag because I had a higher security clearance than the President of the United States because I had crypto access next to my name, and the President can't do that. <laughs> but it was, a, it was great training, mm. and there were 11 guys who tested each other. So if you, if you were working on a problem and you went to the bathroom, when you came back to your equipment that you had, you were trying to fix a problem on, that problem wasn't there anymore. You had a different problem. <laughs> we, so <laughs> we just screwed with each other. And the, the, the 11 of us were, were top graduates. I mean, we just, so few people understand what competition can truly do. We didn't try to kill each other. We just tried to make each other better. The 11 folks you're talking about, it, it was one uh, cohort in, in the technical training school. Is that right? Yes. Okay. The, the, the 11 of us were, were that close, and the, the, I didn't know that at that time, but we had something else in common, and the one thing we had in common was we were very good in school, and we had all signed up to go to OCS, Officer Candidate School, but we wound up in the same, same company and near the end of our training for Christmas. We were going to school during the day. We were in a night company, so we got screwed out of 16 hours of leave. So we had to throw up. We had to wait until the the guys came home at, later that night before we could get dismissed. 
So we decided to throw a little party. And uh, booze was involved. And I think we threw $2 or something like that in a hat. And whoever had the, a, a valid ticket for alcohol with the least cost got the pot. No, I, I just got a bottle of good red wine, and uh, I didn't care for losing the $2. Let's talk about uh, moving from basic, and now you just we're talking through technical AIT. Yeah, But that, those, those 11 guys, we all went to Vietnam all together, and ten of us came home together. And uh, John Carney, who was a good friend of mine at the time, I, he, when we graduated, uh, he and his wife drove me to uh, Newark, and I got to hold John's, uh, I think she was four-month-old mm. baby at that time. John and I flew over to, to uh, Vietnam together, spent the first night together at Tonsonut, ran from the bunk to the uh, bunkers like five or six times that night. And John was a really smart guy. And we came back the, the last time, and John says, Mike, I, I, just, I don't know if I can do this. I said, do what, John? He says, how in the hell are we going to, if this is Vietnam, how in the hell are we going to survive this? You don't know when you're going to die. I said, well, you know, you're right, John. You never, you don't know when you die. John, do you ever know when you're going to die? He said, no. I said, so why let it bother us? He says, well, Mike, you got a good point. Let's make this agreement. We died tonight, and all after this is just gravy. So that's how we got through Vietnam. John and I, again, being close through training, uh, he, get, he got Dongtam and I got Kanto, and we were 60-something uh, miles apart. But every Thursday night, we got on teletext because there was a circuit between Dongtam and Kanto. And I'd type RY, RY on the, on the teletype that alerted the operator to, you know, come, come look. And then I'd type in John, and he'd go get John, and we'd talk on a teletype. Was that your second tour? That was my first tour. First tour, okay. And then one day, John didn't answer. And I didn't know what happened. Nobody, nobody would tell me. They closed the Don Cam's comm center and set the, sent the tape up, the tape, the uh, teletype operators up to us. And I went around asking, "Hey, you from uh, Don Cam? Yeah. Uh, do you know John? Yeah. Well, what happened? Go talk to that guy." So I made it way over to that guy. I said, uh, "Hey, did you know John Carney?" And the guy starts crying. I said, "Oh man, I didn't mean to open any wounds." He says, no, no. He says, it was my fault. We were on guard duty. We were walking back. It was my turn to, it was my turn to turn this, the equipment in. I had to go take a leak. John said he'd put it away for me. And John never knew what hit him. I said, so what the hell happened? He says, some hophead came, took the, pulled the pins from his grenades and put the grenades in the case. John had his back to the cases, never knew what hit him. Wow. And I thought about that uh, four-month-old four daughter. And it took me until the Internet got invented to find her. And for a few months, you know, I told her, that, hey, when you, want, ever, you ever have a question about your daddy, here's my number. You can call me. She'd call me all hours of the day and night. Hmm. Tell me about my daddy. And I'd make up stories, let her know what a good man he was. I never got to the point where I wanted to tell her what really happened. I, I just, we never discussed that. But then one day she calls me up and says, Mike, she said, uh, we're, we're going to stop this. I'm moving. I'm changing my phone number. I'm not going to get back on that site anymore. And I said, whoa, what's going on? And she says, people are calling me all hours of the day and night, calling me my dad a baby raper and a mother killer and a mother raper and a baby killer. Mm. I said, don't lose my phone number. When you uh, want to talk, call me. She never did. But I found her again. We had a brief conversation. So John Carney, certainly rest in peace. I hope, we, I hope his family and his, his daughter is doing well. What a, That is such a tough, tough shoes to put yourself in, right? Tough, tough yes. situation to, to relate to, just that tremendous amount of loss. And Can you understand the pride it gave me to be able to make up stories about her daddy? What an awesome opportunity. Yep. I love your stories, 
and I love your compadres and your your colleagues that you're you're sharing with stories about and uh, your experiences about with Chris and I. Who else would you point to? A couple other folks that you served with that are just salt of the earth people that you you wouldn't have been able to to navigate through without them. Funny you should mention that. Talmadge Moon was our our warrant officer, and a few years ago. I reached out and found Talmadge Moon on Facebook. Hmm. He told me about a guy named Sam Alvarez, who was who was shorter than me. And uh, a little story about Sam came into the the uh, crypto room. We were working on a problem. We we're trying to solve a problem that, and I don't remember what all the, what was the full details. But Sam was about five foot six, five foot seven. And we had these high tabletops. And he walks in and says, I'm Sam Albert. I'm the new E5, and I took over from that lazy E8. I'm the new constant center director. Mm. You know, me being a smart aleck, I said, who in the heck said that? And I'm looking around. There's this short little guy on the other side there. And I said, did somebody say that Not that I'm not seeing? And he said, I said that. I said, well, who the hell are you? He says, I just told you. So we were friends immediately. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, was Talmadge Moon, was that one of the... He was the CW3. He was the warrant officer that ran our comm center. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. Sam, Sam Albert is now a part of this group of Talmadge Moon, me, Richard Amoroso, an Italian from the Bronx area, I believe he grew up. And John McLean, who was my best friend and cubemate in Vietnam. John and I made a pact that he would be at my wedding and I'd be at his. And uh, he waited for me to finish my second tour before he got married. Hmm. Much to the chagrin of his wife, <laughs> who didn't talk to me for probably three years because he had to delay the wedding. <laughs> well, now, was he at your wedding, too? Uh, you know, he didn't, uh, you know, Susan and I got married on Pearl Harbor Day, which was dead day at Valdosta. Mm. And we only had, my mom and dad didn't come. Uh, nobody from my family came. Her brother and sister came. And that was, that was the only family that came to the wedding. We didn't give anybody notice. But John was PO'd at me that I didn't call him and tell him about the wedding. But we, we got over that. Of the eleven folks that were you were going through back in tech school, do you still are you still in, in touch with any of those folks? Not the eleven, but Sam Albert, Richard Amoroso, John McLean, and a few others. And Talmadge Moon. Talmadge is uh, in his eighties. Uh, he's got emphysema, mm. and you know the hurricane. He had two hurricanes come through this year. I, you know, I tried, Thomas, I got a room for you, man. Let me come down and get you. He says, no, Mike, I'm on oxygen. I, I got family close. So I'm not leaving. Couldn't get him to come up. So he worried us, but he's okay. He's a fighter, sounds like. Yep, he is a fighter. Let's talk about some of the accomplishments you look back at, formal, informal. You know, clearly you, you, you had some really dear people that you served with and, and in an era that, didn't get its due in terms of recognized for their contributions and sacrifices. You know, all of that was, was overdue. What, what are some things you point to that you and the folks you serve with got done that you take most pride in? We won Comp Center of the Year Award, I believe. Um, we were fighting uptime. We, the, the maintenance team, understood how important our job was. You know, we didn't do our job, people died. It's just as simple as that. When you say, just to clarify, Mike, when you say fighting uptime, you're trying to keep the communication system up and running yes, so sir. that you could coordinate the um, Whatever the efforts. Whatever yeah. coordinating. Yeah. If it was enemy locations, if it was uh, terrorist activities, whatever needed to be transferred. Because we, we, were, we were the center for Fourth Corps in Vietnam. There were four corps in Vietnam. And we were four core. Mm. It was a pride in each of us. And, you know, Sam Albert, 
being an E5 taking over from an E8, kicking a guy out because he couldn't do his job. There's a lot to be said for Sam Albert. Mm. Richard Amoroso, the best teletype man. He could fix teletypes in his sleep. <laughs> McLean was the only fixed crypto gear uh, maintenance guy in the four core. So he got traveled around a lot. And someone had to learn to fix the machines when he wasn't there in our comm center. So he trained me how to, how to change tubes because he had the older gear. Hmm. And I got to be pretty efficient at that. Uh, there were several others. Hmm. Uh, some of the other maintenance men, Tom Johnson. Tom lives out in Pasadena, California. I'm still in touch with these people. Love it. And, you know, if somebody asked me about, you got friends, Roman? I don't know, you got friends. And I said, uh, well, you know, I know a guy can call, and he'll pick up by the third ring. And uh, we did. We tried that one day, and Tom picked up the phone on the second ring. He said, Roman, what's going on? What can I do for you? Well, he, he and I haven't met since he left Canto. Wow. I mean, Cameron Bay, because he came with me to Cameron Bay, because we had some manufacturing expertise, and we were sent up to Cameron Bay to help set up a manufacturing flow for building these de these devices that got implanted in the field to detect troop movements, vehicle movements. We could detect swimmers in the canals. We could listen to conversations going on in the in the jung jungles and stuff. Mm. And he and I helped put in a flow manufacturing process. Love that. That that teed you up for a lot of what you did, maybe. Uh, not knowing, but yes, yeah. yeah, not knowing that it was that was going to be my future. I love that. Mike, I know that there's so many other stories and individuals that you served with and that you experienced in uh, Vietnam. We'll have to have a second part, a second chapter, Chris, to Mike Roman's story, maybe. Let's talk, if we can, Mike, let's talk about your transition. Uh, you know, that gets, regardless of the generation of veteran that we talk to here, um, that seems to get a lot of attention as, as companies are trying, companies and businesses and and current veterans are all trying to figure out that transition process. And, and you know, that's, that's probably one thing that you and I haven't chatted about in all of our many conversations through the years. And that's, that's something that Chris and I are, are really curious about. Tell us about that transition for you and, and what that was like. And then we're going to get you to share some advice with uh, other veterans that may be transitioning now. But what was it like for you? Uh, I came home from Vietnam twice. First one was on Kent State Day. And I don't have to say anything about that. Second time I came home was the was a week or two weeks before Thanksgiving. And my dad had a, a big job and had lost it. He didn't get along with Louis Cafori, his boss. And he picked me up in Atlanta. And they were living in Valdosta. The first words out of my dad's mouth when I, when, when I got to the car were, how come you didn't just fly to Valdosta? I could have picked you up at the airport there. Gosh. Wow, what a fine how you do, Mike. Yeah. Vietnam was not popular. And my dad, and I didn't know about my dad losing his job, which explained something, but I didn't know at the time. So I said, well, thank you very much. And we rode in silence home. He said, so how long are you going to be here? And I said, I, I, I really don't know. He says, well, it's $75 a week. <laughs> Sounds like a deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, I paid rent to stay in my dad's home. He left the next week. He got a job and left and left me to sell his 5,200-square-foot home. Didn't know anybody in town. He, he had a realtor and all that. And I started drinking. And uh, I was still Catholic at the time. And I went to Mass and met this Irish missionary guy. Said hello to him, got one of some of the prisoners knew, who knew my dad introduced me to him. And his name was Father Timmons. And uh, he became my drinking buddy. And I learned his story and he learned mine and learned that he was an IRA guy. You know, the in, uh, in Irish Republican Army. Right. And one of his bombs killed a bunch of kids. Mm which he had not meant it to, saw the errors of his ways, became a priest, and decided to be a missionary in America. So he helped me come down, helped me understand that people are just ignorant. It's 
sometimes and to uh, let it be water like off a duck's back. So Father Timmons really helped me. And he played a later role, too. When Susan and I got married, and we'll celebrate our 48th wedding anniversary in a couple of days here. It's December 7th. We chose it December 7th as a symbolic day for us. It symbolizes our relationship. Yeah, that's Pearl Harbor Day. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so Bud Curtis was a sociology professor there. Susan knew Bud. I knew Bud. We had a Catholic and Methodist minister uh, marry us in, a, in, a, in the Catholic Church in Valdosta, Georgia, serving communion in both species, the Methodist and the Catholic, the wafer and the wine. It had not been done in the United States. Huh. So Valdosta, Georgia got on the maps. The relationship with Father Timmons and John Curtis and my major professor, Kelly Wells at Valdosta, really helped bring me home. You know, I understood that, yeah, I have a role to play. Yes, people can be stupid. And the more you don't reveal a whole lot about yourself, the better off everybody is. Mm. So I applied myself, and Kelly Wells was like a drill instructor. He became my major professor, and he put me to task. He told all the professors in the psych department that if you need someone for your class, you can, you can go to Mike, he'll teach that class for you, but he needs five-minute prep time. <laughs> so I was teaching Jung, and I was teaching uh, Maslow, and Kelly would come to me and say, hey, uh, I'm not feeling well, I need you to do statistics, and we're talking about standard deviation today. So I'd have to go do that class. Or he'd call me physiology, I'm doing physiology today, Mike, and you need to do physiology of the ear. Now, how young were you when about this time? I didn't realize quite how early you started instructing because you've done a lot of that in your career. What? How old were you? I'm trying to remember. I was born in '48, and that was '75, '76. Wow. Okay. So, what was that? '28, wow. something like that. Gosh. And uh, just able to switch from one subject to to the next with little prep time, huh? <laughs> Well, I didn't sleep a lot. I had to do a lot of reading. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, but but I learned so much, Scott. Mm. Uh, I learned so much. Let's pick your brain. If you're if you had a chance to speak with uh, military members that um, are getting ready, or maybe they're in the middle of their own their own transition, or they're getting ready to tra transition, what what's a couple pieces of advice that you would you would offer these men and women? Join the VFW, the American Legion, and find a buddy. There are plenty of us available if you just seek us out. And bear your soul to them. Because they've been there, they've done that. You know, part of where I don't, what I'm hearing, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Mike, but one of the common themes we've heard as we talk with folks um, after their service is really important to admit when, when your, things aren't okay. And, and, and yep. to your point, bear your soul, talk with someone, get it out, you know, get, get whatever you need to get okay, but admit and, and, and be, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I think nope. it sounds like in your gen, in the Vietnam era, you know, that was a challenge. It's still a challenge, you know, decades later with, with current veterans, I think, leaving the service. And that's such an important thing to, to, to make folks aware of, right? Yes, sir. It really is. Um, I belong to a lot of veterans groups, and you know what the vast, vast majority of them are? Vietnam vets. Mm. We didn't have anybody to come home to help us out. Right. I joined the VFW in Valdosta, and, you know, nobody talked to me in a meeting, and, you know, I didn't know much about Valdosta. Uh, I'd gotten a, finally gotten a decent job at Patchogue Plymouth as an industrial electrician. And the guy who taught me more than anything else was a black guy. And he, we didn't talk much other than he, show, he showed me how to do things. And Valdosta was uh, um, still not integrated, let me put it that way. Yeah. And uh, being, having been a member of the VFW, I learned that he was, this, this guy was a Vietnam vet too. I knew uh, the sheriff, Jules Futch. 
because I met him when one of the parties my dad had that I got invited to, and I met Jewel Futch and the mayor and a bunch of other people. And Jewel Futch told me one day, he says, Mike, boy, you need anything. And I mean, boy, you need anything. You come to me. He was talking about alcohol, drugs, and women. Well, I get, you know, I, I take my buddy, we go to the VFW, and got kicked out. He wouldn't let the, they wouldn't let the guy in. So I said, tell you what. Just based on the color of his skin. Is that yes, sir. Didn't know who he was, what he'd done. Just, he's black, he didn't come in here. Mm. So I said, tell you what, go wait in the car. We'll be right out. I went in there. Wait, you know, we go through the pledge and all that kind of stuff from the VFW. Then I said, I'd like the floor. Mr. Rome, you got something to say? I said, yes, sir. Open up my wallet, pulled out my card, tore it up, threw it on the floor, and I said, you guys are nothing but assholes. Excuse my French. Mm. I said, uh, you think I'm going to join an organization like this that doesn't honor its veterans? You got another thing coming. It'll be a cold day in hell if I ever come back to this. Friends with some of the Johns Creek Fashion Association and Jay Cohen, um, another Vietnam vet who was a uh, Navy corpsman and worked with the Marines in Vietnam, called me up one day and said, hey, Rome, you want to go to the VFW with me? I said, let me tell you a little story. <laughs> and he says, well, I'll tell you what, um, next, uh, we'll go next week. Temperature outside was 17. That qualified as cold as hell. <laughs> <laughs> and I wow. joined the VFW up here in, in uh, Johns Creek. It, it was Alfred at the time. So we want to talk a lot more about some of the groups you're in and why that's so important. But before we do, Mike, I want to bring Chris back in. Chris, let's talk with Mike a little bit about his, his professional career post-Vietnam and, of course, some of the, the association work that, that uh, you and I collaborated with so much with Mike on. I mean, Mike, you probably did most of your work before I even met you in terms of, you know, your ERP implementations and experience. But I, I did meet you through another, you know, similar to the VFW, another professional association. So it sounds like you're active and you like to get involved. So this is the, the organization was Apex. Now they're changing their name to ASCM. But you were pretty involved in that for a, for a long time. Would Would you say again, like Scott said, not to put words in your mouth, but would you say getting involved in associations like that helps as well in transitions in career management? Absolutely, because it gives you a purpose. You have the opportunity for a purpose if you choose it. Not being in a timid person, when I was working at Control Data, they asked us to join Apex. We had a group membership. And uh, I was taking the exams. I passed the MRP exam without ever cracking a book because I had read George Plossel back in the, when I was in grade school. So my dad gave me his book on building material. So if I, if I, Mike, if I can just level set. So Apex is, they provide uh, professional education and certification for supply chain professionals. It's recognized globally, and you were involved. That's when you're talking about the exams. Is that correct? Yes, sir. I was taking exam, learning about that body of knowledge. And I passed the MRP exam, never cracking a book, took the inventory management, and I got an F. Did not pass. So I called up Apex, and I said, who in the heck is in charge of this inventory management module? They said, Bob Levy. I said, well, where's Bob Levy? Atlanta. Oh, really? I'm in Atlanta. Well, why don't you go to an Apex meeting? I did, and I met Bob Levy. And chased him all over the place, trying to help, uh, trying to ask him to help me understand why EOQ was so darned important. Because to pass the inventory management module, you had to understand this, the synthesis of EOQ. And, and I told him, Bob, you know how many people use EOQ nowadays? Ever since they invented this process called material requirements planning, there's so few people that, knew, that use EOQ anymore. i got to admit. I don't know what EOQ stands for, so Mike, please fill me in. Economic order quantity. <laughs> it's really it's how it's how to at what point do you order something based off the cost of carrying inventory and how much it costs to order every yes, sir. place an order. So it's a mathematical equation that is pretty much obsolete. <laughs> it was then too. But Mike, really quick, we should we should probably be upfront and frank with the audience. Uh, Mike, Chris, and I are all what we'd probably term supply chain geeks, and, and that's the stuff we love. So if there's, if there's a, a nice, strong flavor of supply chain in this next 
part of the interview. That's why. So, but Mike, please continue. All right. So, you know, I chased Bob all, all over. I bought him a glass of wine so he'd slow down and talk to me a little bit. Because he always weren't, I don't know if you guys knew Bob Levy, but he always had a, a glass of red wine in his hand. Not a bad way to go through life, is it? No, not bad. And as a matter of fact, when he retired from Apex, he opened up his own bar in Dunwoody. And it was a, a, a wine store, believe it or not. Anyway, he, he got tired of me chasing him all over the place. And he says, Roman, if you're so interested in this, get involved and change it. And I said, wow, I will. <laughs> <laughs> Moving from there, I didn't have the job I wanted. You know, we were writing a, a capital M, capital R, capital P, we're, um, manufacturing resource planning system. And we had written it for uh, mid, you know, mini computers. PCs were coming out. So Control Data fired everybody, rehired me as a consultant to help convert the system to a PC-based. And I got involved with Apex very heavily at that point and got another job. I got a job at a company, and I was uh, IT manager. I was inventory manager. I helped schedule the plant. And I, I don't know, there, there were four or five hats I wore. Wow. I was about to say the same thing. Goodness gracious. So when you're talking about getting more involved with Apex, I think. That's where this is going. Yeah. You sat on the national or the international body that, that helped uh, develop curriculum, right? Yes. And what had happened was a lady in shipping came to me and says, Mike, you know, I hear you talking about this Apex stuff, and I like your classes, and I'm starting to understand some of it. But how do I get involved with Apex? And I said, okay, you, you, you do shipments. Let's see, we can put you into inventory. No, inventory management, that's not a place for you. Let's see if we start you with uh, MRP. No, MRP is not for you. We can put you in forecasting. No, forecasting is not for you. And I said, you know what? I don't know. Let me go back to the board. And I was president of the Apex chapter at the time. So let me go back and ask my board that question. So I went in there at our next meeting, and we were holding meetings in the pink building downtown. I had all the chairs removed from the room so we could have short meetings. <laughs> and, and there was a, you know, here's the agenda. You want to get on the agenda, you talk about, about that next time. So anyway, we, I asked the group. I said, I've changed the agenda, you see. And I'm asking this question. Where do we start people? In our education system, what do they take first? Well, what's their job? I have a shipping clerk who's really a shipping manager. Where do we start her? Oh, nobody has an answer. Okay. If I have uh, an inventory person who unpacks purchases and puts them away, where do we start her? She's not managing inventory. Oh, nobody has an answer for that. Does anybody see a problem here? What are we going to do about it? Gary Bedford was part of that group. Carolyn Torrey was part of that group. And Gary stands up and says, I got the same problem in my company. Carolyn stands up, I got the same problem in my company. I said, thanks for volunteering. You, th The three of us will make a committee. A standing committee, no less, Mike. <laughs> Thank you very much, Scott. You got it. A standing committee. Anyway. We put together what is now called the basics of supply chain management because we were just trying to solve a problem in our plants. And Gary being an Army guy, Carolyn wasn't, but when you see an opportunity, you seize it and you make the most out of it. You know, the, the, this woman coming to me saying, where do I start to get an education so I can be somebody for my daughter and make some decent money? There are opportunities everywhere if you just open your eyes and get involved and that's what i've learned from the service your, your service is your service you, you're educated in this area maybe you can get educated in another area but you can still serve just look for opportunities to serve and that's been my message through life i love that uh because it's not just been your message it's been it's been the action you've taken and in fact chris i want to you know the last time you and i and mike probably hung out was with a, a neat little ceremony that we had with his uh, Johns Creek Veterans Association where Mike was inducted as only four inductees total. So it's very 
very prestigious, very limited, but he's a member of the Apex Atlanta Hall of Fame, right? Correct. Yeah, that's right. And that's based off of decades of serving, serving industry, serving supply chain, of course, serving, countlessly serving the veteran community, which really we both admire. I've long admired, but not just serving, but making significant contributions like you're just talking about, the, the basics of supply chain, and then, and then helping develop that curriculum uh, across the, the association, right? Uh, yes. I mean, that legacy is still there. I was on the exam committee for 12 years. Vietnam is starting to catch up with me. And I didn't have health insurance when I started my company. And our fortune is gone because of medical issues. So somebody said, hey, why don't you go talk to the VA? And I said, I, I did back in 1982. And I got kicked out because I couldn't get along with anybody. So I, I've re-seized that opportunity. And I'm getting help from the VA for a number of things. Last time we chatted, I think there were some challenges in getting what you needed and getting people that really wanted to you know, sit down and figure things out. And so it sounds like there's been progress made here recently then, Mike. Yes, there is. And what, what, one of the things that's helped me is to, to serve as a Mason. I'm a Mason, and I followed in my dad's father's footsteps. I'm still early in my Masonic journey. I've gone through uh, two parts of it, and there's another one and a half to go. It's, it's service as well, and I, and I don't know how to put it more plainly than that. The Army makes good men. Freemasonry makes good men better. The exam committees, gosh, we had some wonderful times. Twelve years being with those folks, and I'm still in touch with a bunch of them. Mm. I can make a phone call to Tom Johnson, who I served with in Canto and Cameron Bay. I can make a phone call to Richard Amoroso or Sam Averth or Talmadge Moon. Talmadge Moon will pick up on the second ring. Tommy Johnson will pick up for the third ring. I may have to ring six or seven times to get Albert off his fat butt. But uh, we're still talking, and that's it's been more than 50 years. Who has people that they worked with 50 years ago, they still know, and they can still kid with, you know? Well, Mike, you'll get a, you might get a kick out of this. Yeah, I met you and Chris around the same time, right? And, and it was through the, the Apex Atlanta chapter. And through the years, we've done a variety of different things, really enjoyed you know, serving with you on, on better, especially veterans initiatives, you name it. Um, but first time, so Chris, <laughs> when Chris and I first met, it was he was giving a presentation to the chapter. And it was way back when, if you remember, Mike, we'd meet at the bottom of the Hilton Garden Inn in this long yes. rectangular room. So if you're in the back, if you showed up late, good luck trying to hear or see the, the slides. And that was me that night, right? So uh, I remember Chris finishing up his presentation and said, hey, feel free. If you want a copy of the presentation, just give me a shout. <laughs> so young buck I was, since I couldn't see anything he was talking about, I called him either the next day or maybe two days later. And I call Chris on his own cell that he shared with everybody, and I go, hey, Chris, this is Scott Luton from Apex Atlanta last night. He goes, who? <laughs> I, said, I said, I heard your pr presentation. You said we could call you and get a copy. Click. <laughs> and from that time, it, you know, I might, it, I might have embellished over the years since then. It gets but, better each time, Mike. It gets yes. better <laughs> it does, but you know, I, I love what you, I love, Mike. How you put it around the, the two rings and the three rings, but more importantly, you know, having that those all those wonderful relationships, and and and, and as we've learned in twenty twenty, you know, through this historically challenging year, man, relationships are, are never have been as important. Trusting uh, valuable relationships still make the business and supply chain and 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 better initiatives take place and and, and happen. And I really I love how you've echoed and, and, and really doubled down on that through this conversation here. Well, I don't know what to say, but thank you. You've got to have a mission in life. Mm. Don't play dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the other thing that, that was, uh, Chris, that if you remember, Lornette Vestal was an earlier guest of ours. Uh, great, great interview there. And, and he really shared something with me that, that despite all of the the different ways that, that um, different groups, different veteran groups I've been a part of, never really thought about, but he really made a point of, of how so many veterans, they keep serving even after the, the uniform comes off. And, Mike, you're like the epitome of that. I mean, all the different groups 
that you help. I mean, I can remember countless emails and phone calls where you're trying to help this veteran do this and this veteran do that. That didn't, you know, either they didn't have a connection or they didn't have the wherewithal or whatever it is. And you've just been dedicated to that and it's been very much appreciated. And I know we're only giving folks a sliver of what you've done in this hour or so here. But, man, we need a lot more Mike Romans in life, and, and really, I really appreciate, we really appreciate all that you've done and continue to do. Well, thank you. I, I don't know what to say. Uh, you're making me blush. Yeah, it's about, it's about the connections and the networking. I think it comes through in what you were talking, what you've been saying, Mike. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but I, you've impacted part of my career. I it was probably 10 years ago, but there was an ERP company, and they were looking for a specific skill set, and they, they called me out of the blue. And I'm like, yeah, this is great. I don't know who you are, but. How do you know me? And they're like, well, Mike Roman said to call you. So wow. <laughs> that, that's proof, proof in the pudding right there, you know. It's about the network. The one and only Mike Roman. Well, Mike, I know you're active on Facebook. I'm not sure if you're still active on LinkedIn. But if folks wanted to, you know, get in touch and pick your brain on, on whether it's supply chain-related experiences and, and expertise or, or maybe about your, you know, your Vietnam days or, or your days serving, how can folks get in touch with you? Facebook is the best way. And to our listeners, if, um, if you're not on Facebook, feel free to shoot us a note, uh, and we'll get you in touch with Mike. You can shoot us a note to amanda at supplychainnow.com, and we'll make sure we get you connected with one and only Mike Roman. Michael A. Roman. If, if they want to find me on Facebook, it's Michael A. Roman with a period after A. Well, Mike, we're here at the tail end of 2020. 2021 is just around the corner, and they were all looking forward to getting getting into a new year, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> I hope we get through this sooner rather than later. Get through this this pandemic, and we can we can get together in person and break bread and and uh, check back in with with you and and the Johns Creek Veterans Association, uh, in particular the the Vietnam Wall, the traveling wall is 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 some is a great initiative that y'all been a part of. Is that where does that project stand? It's pretty much in. It's in now. There, there's I think some trim work needs to be done putting marble on the top of it. But it's it's in. We're going to do some landscaping this coming uh, spring. So they've implemented a replica of, of the Vietnam Memorial right there in Johns Creek. Is that right? Yes, sir. It's a, a replica of the wall in Vietnam. Um, the Vietnam Wall in Washington D.C. We had a bid for that thing. We asked them to come through at uh, Georgia. Traveling Wall came in, and we had a very good year for them. We made we made their year. They collected a lot of money, donations from the people that came by. And they said, hey, you guys ever want to buy one of these? We retire these every so often. And uh, we put in a bid for it. Well, Dallas, Texas also had that wall out there. And there became a bidding war. <laughs> We did remind them that we raised more money than Dallas did, so they gave us the last bid. And you won. And, and we won. And, and so the replica here is in Johns Creek, north, just north of Atlanta. Newtown Park. Newtown Park. That's right. I've been there before when it was still traveling. So so much good stuff. And, and Mike, really appreciate all that you do. We could just – this is the, the tip of the iceberg in this conversation. But before we say goodbye to Mike, Chris – what we've heard over the last hour and some change, what's, what's the, the best part of this conversation with Mike that you've enjoyed the most? You can hear it in his voice. Get involved. He has compassion for people. It's not so much that he can get involved and say, oh, look how great I am. He really wants to help people. And if I can just give a small quote, one of my favorites, it kind of indemnifies what Mike's about. Clayton Christensen, who passed away this year, he, he quoted, don't worry about the level of individual prominence you have achieved. Worry about the individuals you have helped become better people. And I can hear it in Mike's voice. That's really what he's all about. And the, and the second thing is, Scott, I think we have a, a title for, the, for this podcast. If anybody was listening, I'm going to call it The Buffer 11. The Buffer 11. <laughs> <laughs> you, gotta, you have to hear the whole story. So that's a throwback. But that's what I've got. I, just, I, have, a lot, I have a respect for Mike and what he's done for me and the, the, the relationships and the friendships. So thank you, Mike. Deeds, not words is a phrase that we are very passionate about and, 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 and really championing uh, and, and, and putting into action. And, and Mike, Mike is a take action guy. And, and so Mike, Mike Roman, really a, a pleasure to talk with you here today. Thanks so much for carving some time out. And we hope to reconnect in person again real soon. Well, uh, Scott, you just, the deeds, not words. There's a Vietnam veteran friend of mine who's, uh, has got some cancer issues right now. 
and he's been in solitary confinement because of his lack of an immune system. That's one of his favorite quotes. So I'd like to give a, a shout out for Pete Manfred. Pete Manfred. Pete Manfred. Well, well, Pete, if you're listening, hey, all the best in in this battle you're going through now, and and I love that calling. You know that where it's not about lip service; it's about you know taking action and ma- making things happen. And and so, Pete, wherever you are, uh, all the best. Uh, prayers and best wishes in this challenge. And and if you're anything like Mike, you're gonna beat it down, and then then be ready for your next challenge. So, Mike, I really appreciate you sharing that. He has two purple hearts. Wow. Goodness gracious. Thank you, guys. Well, hey, Mike, really appreciate it. We'll be back in touch soon. And, and to our audience, hopefully you all have enjoyed this this frank and informative and entertaining conversation that we've gotten from Mike Roman, just like Chris, just like we knew we were in store for, right? Yes, sir. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, on behalf of the entire Veteran Voices team, we invite you to find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And if you're a veteran with a story to tell, reach out. We'd love to feature you on one of our upcoming episodes. On behalf of our entire team here, Scott Luton and Chris Barnes, wishing our listeners nothing but the best. Hey, do good, give forward, and be the change that's needed. Be just like Mike Roman. And on that note, we'll see you next time here on Veteran Voices. Thanks, everybody.